So for the past two weeks, we have began by reminding ourselves that we are in a battle and that this battle begins with the first spiritual breath we take and it ends at our last physical breath. Meaning that this battle continues every day for our entire lives as believers. And it is a battle for the faith. It is a battle for faith. And the enemy is going to do everything he can to undermine that faith. And it has eternal consequences. And what we said the last couple weeks as well is that this battle becomes most intense when we face crisis. When there are struggles and difficulties in our lives, this battle often becomes most intense and most difficult and a greater struggle for us. And we see this clearly with Judah. Uh, remember, the Assyrians have come in, this most fear, fearsome, most terrible people that have created great havoc all over the world. And they have come to the very doorsteps of Jerusalem and are a great threat to God's people. But we also said it's not just the crisis that's the difficulty for our faith, but it's also that in these crises that the enemy often uses to exploit us, to try to undermine our faith, to try to destroy our faith. And he often does this through temptations in trying to undermine our faith. And we saw that with the Assyrians. Remember, they attacked the faith of God's people. They volleyed one bomb after another at God's people in chapter 36 to try to get them to not believe in God, to surrender to them, to abandon their faith. Well, last week, we witnessed a successful battle against the enemy in chapter 37. Hezekiah successfully faced the onslaught of the enemy, and he fought victoriously with faith. I want you to imagine for a second, imagine the enemy throwing bombs at Hezekiah and shooting at Hezekiah. And there is Hezekiah. What is he going to do at this moment? How is he going to respond? And I want us to understand today, I want to look at one key aspect of this battle. That is the reason why Hezekiah was able to be victorious through this battle. And that is because Hezekiah prayed. Hezekiah's prayer is a chief reason, a key reason why he was able to be successful in the faith, to overcome the enemy and to be victorious in the battle. And so we are going to look a little bit at, at a portion of the scripture we were not able to spend a lot of time on last week to understand prayer and how important it is in the battle that we are facing. So if you and I am going to pray well, we need to know how to pray well. This is something that every one of us needs to understand. If we are going to battle well, we need to pray well. And the Bible is our teacher. The Bible teaches us how to pray. The Bible instructs us how to pray, it leads us to prayer. And praise God that he has given us a training manual 
for how to fight better and how to fight well. Now, when I said that we need to learn to pray better, you might misunderstand me as suggesting that this is really a performance, that we are performing before an audience in our prayers. And our prayers are emphatically not a performance. Instead, we want to pray in such a way that honors God. And so that's what I mean when I say we want to pray better. We want to pray in such a way that God's name is magnified and honored and exalted as it should be. And his word teaches us how to honor him better. His word teaches us how to magnify him appropriately through our prayers. So it's entirely right to say, in light of this, that we need to learn to pray better. And we can learn to pray better. And let me give you an example of this that I think will be kind of helpful as we continue to understand how to pray better. If you're one year old, and I'm assuming that that's when we learn to, to start speaking, if, if your one-year-old starts speaking and says things that just don't quite make sense, he doesn't know how to form his words right or even his sentences right, um, and you hear him speaking, you're not going to scold him for speaking, are you? You're not going to say, well, you just didn't say that right, are you? I mean, you might teach him and gently and, and patiently correct him, but ultimately you're just excited that they're talking. You're excited that they're saying something. And the same is true with a new believer. We are just excited that they're praying. You know, we might gently and patiently correct them and help them, instruct them. But ultimately, we love to hear someone pray. And a new believer who's praying, we love to hear them praying. We love to hear the faith that they're praying with, even if they don't say it exactly right. But now imagine a 20-year-old praying. And imagine that 20-year-old, or, or speaking, imagine a 20-year-old speaking and not being able to say the right words and, and stumbling over the words, not being able to put a sentence together. You might say, there's something wrong with that. There's something that's not quite right about that situation. And so it is with a believer. As we mature, we should be able to pray better. We should be able to uh, understand what God's heart and mind and thoughts are and pray them back to God better. In other words, the more we know God, the more mature we become, the better we should pray. And the more Christ-honoring, God-honoring prayers we should give to God. So no, it's not about performance. It's about growing to honor God and growing as a believer. So I'm going to read Isaiah 37, 9 through 32. I want you to try to listen in these verses for what it says about prayer. We want to understand prayer from these verses. Now the king heard concerning Tirhaka, king of Cush, he has set out to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the king of Assyria has done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Resef, and the people of Eden, who are in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Servaphim, the king of Hena, or the king of Eva? Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it, 
And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made the heaven and the earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Then Isaiah the son of Amos sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you have mocked the Lord, and you have said, With my many chariots I have gone up to the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon, to cut down its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses, to come to its remotest height, its most fruitful field, forest. I dug wells and drank waters to dry up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins, while their inhabitants shorn of strength are dismayed and confounded and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it is grown. I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I'll put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. And this shall be the sign for you. This year you shall eat what grows of itself, in the second year what springs from that, then in the third year sow and reap, and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward, for out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant. And out of Mount Zion, a band of survivors, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So in this whole section, you can divide it into three parts that deal with prayer. First, there is this letter from Sennacherib attacking Hezekiah's faith in God. And this letter is what compels Hezekiah to pray in verses 8 through 13. Second is Hezekiah's faith-filled response of prayer to the letter. And this is verses 14 through 20. He responds to the letter with prayer. And then finally, there is God's response of approval to Hezekiah's faith-filled prayer in verses 21 through 32. So the question for us is, what can we learn from Hezekiah's example about prayer? And we can learn, first of all, where does prayer come from? And a lot of people claim to pray, don't they? A lot of people we talk to will claim to pray. But the question is, are we truly praying? Are we praying to God? Does our prayers actually reach beyond uh, the ceiling? Is God hearing our prayers? Are we actually authentically praying to God? And so I want to tell you where prayer comes from, from Hezekiah's prayer. 
in this passage. Prayer comes from a recognition of my condition that I am in great need. So if we are to pray, we first must recognize that we are in great need. We must recognize our condition. And in the letter that uh, Sennacherib sends to Hezekiah, what it does is it, it magnifies and emphasizes the neediness and the desperate condition that Hezekiah is in. And it makes Hezekiah very much aware of his need. So Sennacherib makes two points that exposes the weakness of Hezekiah in order to cause him to surrender to the Assyrians. And first, what the letter says is that God will not be able to deliver you any more than God than the gods of the nations were not able to deliver their people from the Assyrians. And really, he has evidence behind him, doesn't he? There are all these nations that the Assyrians had conquered, and thereby showing that those, those idols, those gods of the nations, were not gods at all. And so he says, don't let your God deceive you. He will not be able to deliver you. He is not God. He is no different than the gods of the nations that we have conquered. And then secondly, he says, look at the kings whom we have conquered and look at the outcome for those kings. It was not good for them at all. And you should therefore be terrified of us. You see, all the kings who have stood against them have suffered greatly. They were humiliated. They were mutilated. They were, um, they were put to death. And the king of Assyria says it will be no different for you. What do you have that you think will make it any different for you than it was for them? So what I want us to understand in this letter might sound a little strange. But praise God for the enemies in our lives. Praise God for the difficulties as well that we face because they remind us of how needy we are. They remind us of how weak we are. So we praise God for them. You know, we are always completely needy. We just don't always recognize it, do we? We are such a needy people. We are helpless in ourselves. Are you aware of how needy you are? Are you aware of how helpless you are? Well, praise God for those circumstances that bring you to your knees. Praise God for those circumstances that remind you that you are desperately needy. Prayer also comes from knowing the truth of who God is, that he is the only sufficient, supreme being in the universe. And the word of God tells us that God is supremely uh, sufficient, doesn't it? That he has everything that we could ever need that he is everything we could ever need. He is all good, he is all powerful, he is all just, he is all loving. He is simply supreme in every single way and he is more than sufficient for the needs that we have. And so we need to know that this is true of God. But it's not just enough to know that these things are true of God. We must believe that God is who he claims to be. That he is not only sufficient but he is also all satisfying and that he is good. You see, we might think, well, as long as I know who God is, that's enough. That's what I need, right? I need to know who God is. I need to know I'm needy and I need to know that God is sufficient. But that really isn't enough. 
that won't drive us to prayer in itself. And this is often where we get it wrong. Real prayer comes from knowing more than that God is supreme in my mind, but comes from experiencing the truth that God is good, that God is loving, that God is merciful, that God is for me, and that is all because of Jesus. In other words, it tastes and sees that the Lord is good. And that's what faith is, isn't it? Those who believe are the ones who cry out for God to save them. Those who believe this are the ones who are thankful in their prayers for who God is and for what he has done. And these are the ones who make God known with their lives and with their mouths and declare his greatness. After laying out before the Lord, he then prays. So he lays out this letter before the Lord, basically saying, what are you going to do about this God? And then he prays. And this is the only proper response, isn't it? And when you and I recognize our weaknesses, as Hezekiah has here, when we see the reality of the supremacy of God, as Hezekiah does here, when we believe the truth about God, as Hezekiah does here, we will pray. For that's where prayer flows from. And that's what drives us to prayer. You see, if you and I are going to pray, techniques can be helpful. Planning is important. But ultimately, it is faith that's going to drive us to pray. And faith comes from God's word. We must never forget that. That if we are going to, to, to draw from the wells of faith, if we're going to, if we're going to drink uh, in such a way that we are filled with faith, we must read God's word. It will not come outside of that. So that God is magnified and we are drawn to him in light of our great. No, no, nowhere else exposes our neediness like God's word. And nowhere else is God exalted like God's word. You can also learn what prayer is. We can define it from this short passage on prayer. So how might you define prayer? Well, prayer is the expression of genuine faith in God. Let me say that again. Prayer is the expression of genuine faith in God. And you can say that in different ways, but another way of saying that is that prayer comes from a heart that has been changed to see the glory of God as supremely great and that loves the glory of God supremely. And you might say, because we might get concerned and say, well, I don't live there constantly. Um, you might say that it also comes from a heart that wants to love God supremely and that desires to see God as supremely lovely. That is where, that is the definition of prayer. Prayer is the response of one who has tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And actually, David said it very well in Psalm 119, verse 68, when he says, You are good, and you do good. So we can learn also what prayer should look like in our lives from Hezekiah's prayer. What should prayer look like? How do we pray? And Hezekiah is a great example of what it looks like. Your prayer should be based on who God is and confess the truth of who God is. Hezekiah bases his prayer on the identity of God in verse 16. If you look at verse 16, you will see that he exalts the truth of God. He confesses the truth of God. 
He says, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. So first, he identifies God as the Lord of the armies. The Lord, that's what the Lord of hosts means. And Lord means covenant God, the God of his people, the God who has made his promises to his people and has entered into a relationship with his people. He is the God of the armies. And then he identifies God as the supreme king. You see, to be a king means you have authority over some jurisdiction, over a certain group of people. But to be the supreme king means that you have authority over all. You have supreme authority over everything and everyone. And he also identifies God as the king who dwells with his people. And this is very significant, and it can be missed if we're not careful. He says God is the one enthroned above the cherubim. And that means that this is where the king has chosen to reside among his people. He has graciously and mercifully decided to dwell with his people in favor and in grace rather than in judgment. That is an amazing thought when you think about it. God dwells among his people as king in a favorable way. You see, God dwells among his people today, doesn't he? And he dwells among us in, in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God with us. And this is really the basis for our prayers, isn't it? I mean, uh, Hezekiah doesn't go into great detail here. But truly, our prayers are based on the mercy and the grace of God, not on our own righteousness, not on our own goodness. That is the basis for which my prayers are going to be heard, is based on his grace and his mercy and his kindness and his goodness. And so he says, the God who dwells among us, the God who is merciful and kind to us, and yet is supreme and is king. He is exalted, and yet he is near to his people. And he hears our prayers. He also identifies God as the creator of everything. That's what he means by the creator of heaven and earth. And to be creator means that you have supreme rights over everyone and everything. It means, it means that you are the one who determines how things work. It means that you are the one who tells how things are to behave that you created. And how they are to work. And how they are to conduct themselves. You are the one who is the infinite one, infinitely above everything you have created. And he determines what is right and wrong. And now, is it any surprise to you that God, as the creator, is one of the chief areas where God is attacked today? Evolution is promoted um, all over the place. And it shouldn't be a surprise because when God is not the creator, then it gets us out of being responsible to God. It gets us out from under his authority and therefore makes us autonomous beings. We are the one who determines how to live. We are the ones who determines what is right and wrong. And so therefore, God as creator is chiefly under attack and it will always be under attack. So long as we are in this fallen world. And therefore, we need to continue to fight for God as creator. We need to confess it. We need to magnify God is the creator. And that is foundational for who we are and what we understand about God. So the truth of who God is forms the basis for all our prayers. 
And this confession acknowledges not only that God is able to save, but also that he wants to save. Our God wants to save us. And this means you need to know God through his word. You need to know God's word so you can know God. Your prayers should also be based on what God loves. Not only on the identity of God, not only should we confess the identity of God, but also we need to base our prayers on what God loves. What is God's heart? What is God's desire? What does God will in his word? And God makes it clear throughout his word what he loves. And we have been talking about this the last couple of weeks, but let me remind you of what God loves from Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God says, I love my glory supremely. And that's the reason why God is so angry at the Assyrians in this passage. And we see it all over this passage. But if we don't understand what God loves, then his anger won't make any sense to us. This is the chief problem in the world. And God identifies it. In verse 6, he says, the Assyrians have reviled me. In verse 23, he says, whom have you mocked and reviled? In verse 24, he says, you have mocked the Lord. In verse 29, he says, you have raged against me. And faith loves what God loves and loves it to the degree that God loves it. And therefore, bases our prayers on what God loves. And you see that in verse 20. Listen to what Hezekiah prays and notice what he's basing his prayer on. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. He says, he says I want your name to be defended. <laughs> I want you to vindicate the glory of your name because that's what I love and I know that's what you love. And that is how we should pray. And then notice, he also sees that there's a connection between what God loves in his glory and the saving of his people. You see, God loves to save his people because he loves his glory. And so he says, show the world, show the nations that you are God by saving your people. So you can't disconnect the two. God saving us is showing his glory. And God loves his glory and therefore he loves to save us. God loves to save his people. And so we can pray that way, understanding that God delights to save us. We can pray, God, save me for your name's sake. And we can know that God loves. That's what God loves and that's what God desires. There's no greater appeal than for God's glory. And so we should pray, God, use my salvation, save your people, save people all around me as a platform to show your glory to the world. We should therefore learn what God loves and pray according to what God loves because we know that this is how God acts and this is how God works. Now, we don't know every specific situation. Sometimes I pray, God, glorify yourself by healing this person. Glorify yourself in this way or that way. And we don't know how God is going to choose to glorify himself in every way. But we do know that God loves it when we pray that way. And we do know that God is ultimately going to save us. And he's going to bring us safely into his kingdom for his name's sake and for his glory. This is the way the people of faith such as Moses and David prayed throughout the Bible. Listen to these verses. Psalm 143 verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. 
In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. Psalm 25, verse 11. For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Psalm 31, verse 3. For your namesake, you will lead me and guide me. Psalm 23, 3. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, my question for you is, if what we pray for chiefly indicates what we love the most, then what do you pray for? And how do you pray to God? I remember being a, a youth pastor and 99% of the prayer requests were for, for people's pets, for their cats, their dogs. We were praying for like every animal in the world. And uh, it's not bad to pray for animals, but it should not be our chief concern. Our chief concern should be the glory of God. And we should pray in light of that. You and I need to grow to love what God loves. If you want to pray and know God's heart, then you need to know what God desires. And God tells us what he desires. He reveals his heart to us through his word. And it's not surprising that God confirms such a prayer as being pleasing to him in his enthusiastic response to Hezekiah in verses 21 through 32. Now, what we see here is that it's hard to see if you just read it, but it's as if God immediately responds to Hezekiah. It's as if before he even gets up from his knees, God responds to him, emphasizing the enthusiastic response of God. And then for the rest of the passage, God continues to affirm the prayer by declaring judgment on his enemies and salvation for his people. Now, whether or not we have such indications in our lives that God is pleased with our prayers, here is the indication that God is pleased with such prayers. This is all we need to know that God is pleased with such prayers, and it's God's word that tells us that this is what pleases God. And this is how to pray that pleases him. We finally learn what your prayer accomplishes. Have you ever wondered, what am I actually accomplishing when I pray? Well, God's response to Hezekiah's prayer in verse 21 is pretty astonishing. God basically says, because you have prayer, prayed, therefore, I am going to do this. You see, at face value, it appears that Hezekiah's prayer is determining what God is going to do. God responds by saving Hezekiah and judging their enemies because Hezekiah prays. And so this might bring us uh, a number of questions into our hearts. You know, and this is just a natural question to ask when we hear such, uh, such words as these. Does this mean that your prayers have the power to change God's mind? Does my prayer change the course of history? Does my praying mean that I am in control and God is my servant? Who is sovereign in this passage here? When someone prays, who is sovereign? And what we find by looking at the rest of the passage and really at the rest of scriptures is that we have a clear answer to that question. That prayers do not change God's plans. They don't change God's plans at all, but are rather God's means for fulfilling his preordained purposes. You see, prayer itself is part of God's decree. God has decreed before time began for his plans to be fulfilled. And part of that decree, 
Part of the plans are the prayers themselves. Through prayer, he draws us up into his, his eternal purposes, involving us in what he's doing. So there's no conflict between God's absolute sovereignty and prayer because prayer is the means God has chosen to accomplish his sovereign will. And God uses Hezekiah. And he determined for Hezekiah to pray as a means to fulfill his purposes. Now, there's another side to this that we also need to emphasize, and the Bible is very clear about this. Not only is God sovereign, but we are completely responsible for our own actions. You see, no one came to Hezekiah and forced him to pray, did they? No one told him, Hezekiah, you need to pray now. He prayed according to his own desires. He prayed freely according to what he desired. And yes, God had changed his heart. And that's what God does. He changes our hearts. But he still prayed. And he still desired. And he still took the actions himself. And the result of his prayer was that God was going to actually save him. And this response to prayer is, sim is similar to what we read in James 4 verse 2. Listen to this. Our responsibility is made clear in, in, this, in this verse. You have not because you ask not. So the Bible holds up these two truths and doesn't see them as a conflict. It never, um, it never pits them against each other. God is completely 100% sovereign and we are completely 100% responsible for our actions. And, and the Bible doesn't apologize for it. It doesn't try to explain it away. But both are true. Both are 100% true. And both needs to be understood if you're to pray well. And both of these truths are confirmed through prayers found throughout the Bible. We read about how people prayed for what was already predetermined by God to be accomplished. In Psalm 2, verse 7 through 8, for instance, God tells his servant to pray that he would receive the nations as his inheritance. Listen to this. Um, Psalm 2, verse 7 through 8. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. God had already decreed to do this, but he tells his son, his servant, to pray for it. In Luke 1, verse 13, God says that has a, to, to Zechariah, Because you have prayed, you will have a son. But God already decreed that he would have a son. In Malachi 3, verse 1, long time ago, God promised this son. And then he also decreed that Zechariah would pray. And because he prayed, he received a son. God was fulfilling his promise through the prayers of Zechariah. In Daniel 9, verse 2, this is a great passage uh, where we find that God's people had been in captivity for 70 years. And Daniel remembers that God had promised that his people would be delivered at 70 years of captivity. Let me read uh, Daniel 9, verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So what does he do? Does he sit there and say, God is going to do it. I don't need to do anything. I'm just going to sit back and relax and let God be God. No, what he does is he goes into earnest, passionate, repentant prayer, 
asking God to fulfill his promises. And that's really what we're doing, aren't we? When we pray, we're asking God to fulfill his promises. And that's what he does. He says in verse three, then I turn my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And then I'm just gonna read verses 17 through 19 because it's a great picture of what we've been looking at so far and how we should pray. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. We have to remember that we have finite minds and we're trying to understand an infinite God. And so there's going to be a tension in our minds. We're not going to be able to completely understand this. And that's okay. You don't need to. What you do need to understand is God is 100% sovereign and man is 100% responsible. That is not a mystery. But how it works together is a mystery. And so we need to understand there is a tension there. And we will never, with our finite minds, be able to put all these things together. And that's okay. <laughs> the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man should not discourage you from praying but should rather compel you to pray. You see, the responsibility of man means that our prayers are actually accomplishing something. It means that our prayers are actually doing something. That God is using our prayers for a purpose and that they're not wasted. And yet his sovereignty means you can trust the outcome, whatever God does, however God answers our prayer, no matter what, that it is according to his good and perfect will. It means that God is all-powerful and therefore he is in control. And when people are praying, this is really an incredible thought. When people are praying, you can know that God is working. God is working to fulfill his purposes. So we are in a real battle. There are eternal implications to this battle. This is a battle for faith. And we must be a people who pray if we are to fight well. We will not fight well if we, do not be, if we are not a people who pray. We don't win through arming ourselves, through diplomacy, you know, arguing with the enemy is not going to work. We don't win with our money, with our achievements, with our righteousness, but through prayer, through God-dependent and God-magnifying prayer. If we are to fight well, we must pray well. Now, the good news is that God has taught us everything we need to know about prayer in his word. The prayer is a literal treasure trove, a tre- treasure chest of, of truths that lead us and teach us and instruct us and show us how to pray. Our prayers must be informed by God's word and they should continually be informed and growing to understand God's will in his heart better. George Mueller was a great man of prayer. He lived in the early 1800s and he learned the value of God's word informing our prayers. And I want to read you what he said. The difference then between my former practice and my present one is this. Formerly, when I rose, I began to pray as soon as possible and generally spent all my time till breakfast in prayer or almost all the time. At all events, I almost invariably began with prayer. But what was the result? 
I often spent a quarter of an hour or half an hour or even an hour on my knees before being conscious to myself of having derived comfort, encouragement, humbling of soul, and often after having suffered much from wandering of mind for the first 10 minutes or a quarter of an hour or even half an hour, I only then really began to pray. Can you, can you see yourself there? I scarcely ever suffer now in this way. From my heart being nourished by the truth, being brought into experimental, which means experiential today, fellowship with God, I speak to my father and to my friend, vile though I am and unworthy of it, about the things that he has brought before me in his precious word. It often now astonishes me that I did not sooner see this point. He said before he didn't read the word of God to instruct and guide and lead him to prayer before he would begin with prayer, but then he learned that having the word of God instruct and guide and lead him to prayer made his prayer much more fruitful and guided him in his prayers. It gave direction and revolutionized his prayer life. Prayer is something that every Christian can do. I want you to know that, believer. Every Christian can pray. Your, your prayers are not effective because of your special talents or ability or righteousness. But because of Jesus Christ's work on the cross, that's the basis. That is why we say, in Jesus' name, amen. That's not a throwaway word. We're saying, based on Jesus, may my prayers be heard. It's in his name that my prayers actually reach the very presence of God because of what he's done and on his basis and on his work. So based on his saving work, you can have confidence that your prayers are received by God. Prayer is not only what you can do, but is most, the most important thing you can do. And you need to understand there's nothing more important we can be doing as a church than praying. Don't ever think you have no value to the church. Every one of us can pray and therefore every one of us can do the most important thing that we need to be doing in, in service to God and in, the, in kingdom work, which is prayer. God forbid that we should fail to pray. And I'll close with this reminder. If you and I are going to pray, if we're going to pray better, if we're going to pray well, techniques are helpful in planning, can be, can be helpful as well, but ultimately it is faith that is going to drive us to pray. It is faith in God. It is hearing his word and it is through God's word that our faith will be enlivened and strengthened that we will see that it's not my techniques, it's not my ability, it's not my righteousness, but it's foundationally based on I am a needy person, God is supremely powerful, and he is good and wants to save me for his namesake. And that will compel me to pray for his glory in his name. Let's pray. Lord, you are our king. You are mighty to save. Lord, you are not only king, but you are also creator. And Lord, you are with us today. Lord, you are present with your people. Lord, we thank you that you are with us. We thank you that you have had mercy on us, that you have chosen to save us from our sins and to bring us safely into your kingdom. Lord, I pray that you would cause us to be a people who cry out to you. Help us to be a people who know your heart, who see your greatness, 
and you recognize that we are desperately needy for you. And Lord, I pray that you would do a mighty saving work in our midst. I pray that you would revive our hearts, that we might see you accurately and love you as you truly are. Oh God, I pray that you keep us from the evil one. You know that we are so easily tempted. You know that we are so easily tempted to love what is not supremely lovely, to love the things of this world. But God, may you open up our hearts and our minds that we might see the greatness and the glory of who you are and that we might be a people who pray. Lord, help us to, to, be, to, to respond and to live as your people this week. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone out there who does not know you, I pray that there's anyone out there who is separated from God, whose prayers are not heard, Lord, who is outside of your favor, I pray that you would save them today. I pray that you show them their great need for a Savior and that you would do a mighty saving work in their lives. In Jesus' name, amen.